0: what's up everyone and welcome back to the pisgah podcast we are your hosts i'm mangler
1: and that is drew and you are listening to pisgah we're coming to you live from the western express
0: lift at snowshoe mountain wait that ain't pisgah
1: Well, some local news and updates for you guys, if you listeners, Andrew, you too, can recall back to our fourth episode with the Old Fort Ridehouse. House, Joe talked about expanding to have a bike shop in the Old Fort Ridehouse House and now they went and done it. Chad Schauner has opened up a shop in the ridehouse House, we've not had a chance to swing by and visit, but we will.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to check it out, he's uh, been a bike mechanic in the area for a while for a, a few different shops and uh, he's got a pretty good reputation. Right on. In other events, the Riveter is hosting the second annual Harvest Jam on October 2nd, so that'll be what this weekend.
1: Oh yeah, sneaking up on us quick. The Winrock Winter Race League dates have been announced: October 17th, November 21st, December 12th, and January 2nd, and February 20th. Entry is free if you have a pass, and these are great events to you know keep you active during the off season. You know, whether you're planning a race season in the coming year or whether you're just trying to keep motivation up and not get soft over the winter, which is kind of easy to do.
0: Yeah, super fun races, and uh, you can guarantee that there's going to be some World Cup level competition out there. Yeah, so don't expect to get on those steps that easy. Yeah, you got to earn it. But, uh, you know, speaking of World Cup, the Snowshoe World Cup is done and dusted. It was a whirlwind week of racing in the books, and there was a lot of drama.
1: And your predictions were not exactly on point, but, you know,
0: we'll say close enough. Dude, yeah, I am gutted for De DiPrela. They were his races to lose, and, uh, you know, he had some rough luck. That being said, Bruni, he put in the best effort, and it was well-deserved. He looked so awesome coming down through there. He He knows what to do with a bike. That's saying it as simple as I possibly can. And it was the same story for the ladies' race valley hole turned up the gas and miriam nicole had one job and that was to you know pull it through but luck wouldn't allow it but they were well-fought races
1: miriam uh, what she needed to do like she only needed to get like fourth or something and then she like slid out on that one turn coming into the flat section that was such a bummer
0: yeah yeah i was gutted for her too but you know what i'm psyched for valley because she is the next generation coming up through this and uh you know as the torches get passed from one generation to the next, it's just it's great that they can be competitive with each other.
1: Oh, totally. And on the cross country side, Evie Richardson locked in the win for the women's race and Christopher Blevins grabbed the win for the first time in quite a while for an American winning a World Cup XC
0: race. Indeed. And local Luca Shaw gets special shout out for his fifth place finish for the final round.
1: Yeah, it was really awesome seeing all the Americans and just whoever psyched for his finish. And of course, Papa Shaw in there in the mix. That was a proud dad moment for him right there. And you know, to keep it World Cup and local for this week's interview, we caught up with Nico Malali, fresh off of his first week of rest and relaxation from the World Cup circuit. But he's still busy with like a million other things going on in his life. Sorry, right, Nico, we've had you on the short list for podcast guests from the beginning. You know, it's kind of hard not to. You're one of the local World Cup pro mountain bikers, but uh, we kind of just didn't want to do a Nico podcast that's the World Cup racer. You know, you've got a lot of stuff going on, um, and you kind of do a bang-up job when you do those shows with Elliot, so that's a completely different style of show than what we've got going on, so, you know, let that be awesome, and we do our own thing. So we wanted to wait a bit and kind of see how much behind the scenes stuff we could let you stack up before we asked to bring you on the show. Um, so, you know, here we are, um, with a mountain of cool stuff. So, you know, let's drop in, so to speak, you know? So first up, let's kind of talk. One of your most recent things is your raffle for bikes for kids. What's that got going on?
2: Yeah. In, uh, 2017 and 18 i raffled off my world champs bike and each year we raised 25 grand and i did that through candade which is oscar blues's non-for-profit and they bought bikes for underserved kids at different elementary schools around the country and one of them was pretty close to here we we went over to the school with 100 kids bikes and gave them to them and they were so stoked like a lot of kids it was the first bike that they ever had so they were super jazzed about it and it was just so cool to give them the bikes and see how excited they were. The past two years, I haven't really been able to do it. We've either had prototype frames that I wasn't allowed to give away, or just bad timing with like races being delayed and and everything kind of being weird. So this year, I thought it'd be a good opportunity to try to do another giveaway. And I did, I'm doing all the fundraising myself. It's pretty easy thing to do. Like I get given all these cool bikes and all this cool gear and they normally do it special for a race anyway. I had a special bike for Snowshoe being a home World Cup, and I thought it'd be cool. Like, I've got a couple of world's bikes in my basement collecting dust, and they're they're cool to have, but at a certain point, it's like you can only have so many old race bikes, and I thought it'd be cooler to try to pass it forward and use it to raise money for a good cause. So I am raffling off the bike kind of to get around. There's a lot of laws with gambling and stuff. So That's weird. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I get it. Like, some people might take advantage of something like that but um instead of selling raffle tickets i'm selling posters you can go on nikamali.com it's a shopify site that you can just buy a poster if you don't really want a poster i mean that's the way that we have to do it but if you don't want a poster you can just donate and um that'll give you a chance to win the bike and all the money that is raised we're gonna buy a fleet of higher end kids bikes that we keep at canuga and hopefully some other participating bike parks and um They'll be treated as rental bikes that are free to use. Kids will have to, like, sign up into a program. I Mm -hmm. thought maybe we'd make them write an essay, like, a paragraph about why they want to be able to use the bikes. And I'll I'll include them all, but just try to make them have to do something to get into it. Maybe for every 5, 10 days they use a bike, they have to spend an hour learning how to do basic maintenance on it, doing basic maintenance on the trails, kind of just teaching them how to be good mountain bikers good members of the community and hopefully it just creates a situation where like the cost of a bike isn't the prohibiting factor mm-hmm. if um if somebody wants to ride if they genuinely want to get involved with the sport there's a way that they can do it they just have to show interest yeah and um yeah th- i think it's cool it's uh, it makes sense to me to do something like that so i'm happy to be able to give my bike away to create the opportunity
1: yeah and that's one thing to that- You know, you'll see where, like, a school wins a fleet of bikes or, you know, bikes are just given out to to kids in a community or something, and they may not get the maintenance that they require or, you know, the kid doesn't understand much about the bike. This is a completely different way of introducing the kids to the bike, what it takes to maintain a bike, and and a nice bike at that. And it kind of opens their minds up to, hey, this is a good bike, and, and this is what you can do with a bike like this.
2: Yeah, for sure. And and like you said, it's it, you can have tons of good ideas. Sometimes it's the execution that falls a little short, but we've got a good program set up with our rental fleet at Canuga, and other bike parks have similar stuff. I'm hoping to do it at Windrock, Snowshoe, maybe some other bike parks around. And, yeah, if we can just give an opportunity where the kids have a chance to ride real mountain bikes and, I mean, it's so fun the first time you you get to ride one of those and hopefully that gets them hooked and gives them the chance to really get into something that that I think is pretty cool. So, I mean, I think that's like one thing that you can do to leave a legacy behind is like stuff that you enjoy and you think is cool. Give other people an opportunity to experience the same things that you like. So hopefully this this is a good opportunity for me to, to do something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you 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 said some things. I like to touch back on this a second ago. You said it's pretty easy to do. Someone in your caliber, that's a professional bike rider with lots of good connections, it's easy to make stuff like this happen. So it's awesome to see you making it happen here, and hopefully
2: other places as well. Yeah, and hopefully it encourages other people to do the same thing. Like I know some other mountain bikers, biker braid, Braden Bringhurst. He's mm-hmm. a pretty popular guy out in Utah. And, um, and he's doing similar stuff. They saw him raffle off some bikes and give all the money back to his local trails. So, I mean, as pro riders, we get given so much cool stuff. Like, I hate to – I don't mean to brag, but, like, there's so many, like, custom race kits. And mm-hmm. even just, like, giving away jerseys and, like, just – I've got so much stuff just sitting here that I get given as it's marketing for the brands that sponsor me to get cool stuff to go use and, and show in the race and, um, show people that I'm using this product. So instead of when it's run its course and I'm done using it, like if I can use it to raise money and just give it away, like it's way better than it's sitting around. So it just takes a little bit of admin to like make it all happen and line it up and get it done correctly. But I could be, doing other stuff with my time, but I, I feel like doing that stuff is, um, is a good use of it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's much better than having a, a, a secret eBay account where you're just selling that stuff off for yourself. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of where we are now. So let's back this up a little bit. What originally brought you to Western North Carolina?
2: Yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. Growing up in the Northeast was a great spot to get into downhill racing. Where we were based was pretty close to going to a lot of races in the Northeast. Almost every ski resort had a bike park or, or downhill race. So we could race almost every weekend up there, um, going north or south from PA. So it was a good spot growing up. We had a local hill that we could shuttle at, Mount Penn. That was, I could see it from my house, only 15 minutes away. It wasn't the best trails, but there was a paved road that went to the top. There was like a public park, so we could shuttle it really easy and just had a cool spot to ride living there, like the winters were harsh. It would get too cold to be able to ride all year, often snow or freezing rain, just kind of not the best weather. Yeah. So I, I would come down here during the winters. Um, I was good friends with Chris Herndon. He was, um, kind of a big inspiration for me being like the fastest guy from the East coast. He had gone to world champs numerous years and was racing a couple of world cups and was a national champion. So, um, he invited me to come and train with him down here a little bit when Mm -hmm. I was a junior and I stayed with him and showed me around the trails in this area. And I was hooked. It was such a good spot to ride regardless of the time of year that I would come as often as I could. And like when I was in high school, I'd come over our winter break. And and then when I was done with high school, I came for pretty much the whole winter and then um, a year or two after that, just stayed here full time. So I've been living here since uh, 2013 and um, consider this place home now. Like I go back to Pennsylvania during the holidays and stuff, but mm. um, North Carolina definitely feels a lot more like home to me. Well, you've kind of dragged some of your family down here too, right? Yeah, so my brother, he lives in Knoxville, but he's close by, and my mom lives in Hendersonville now. She lived with me for a while when I moved down here and, and also just loved the area. And she works in Brevard and, and lives in Hendersonville, so it's cool to have family close by or Around here now, and my dad and my—I have a younger brother who's 15 and is really into downhill racing. And they still live up in PA, but they come down and visit all the time. And my little brother stays with me for weeks in the summer between races and stuff. And yeah, it's cool to cool to have such a good connection. And I mean, living in a place that's so good for mountain biking, you get to see a lot of friends. They always want to come and hang out and stay. So um, definitely fortunate to be in this area. Got to share it with everybody, man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't mind people coming in to ride. I guess I'm, I'm not from here, so I can't complain when there's a bunch of people on our trails. But um, if you love mountain biking and you're a core rider, I think yeah, you know, you're welcome to come here and just be a good ambassador to the sport. And I think people are welcome to come if they're going to ride like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if, if my memory serves me right, from early on, you kind of had your hands... Uh, in the project working with Bailey Mountain Bike Park when it got started, RIP, and then it was like a little bit later, and you're popping up over at Windrock. So talk to me about kind of how that stuff got started.
2: Yeah, it was um, it was super inspiring when they uh, when they put the effort into building Bailey with something that we really needed in the area, and um, I built a couple trails out there, some of the downhill southeast races, the first ones we had we organized out there, and it was just cool to have a spot in the Asheville area for downhill. It's kind of like the one thing as as a pro downhill racer living in Brevard that we're kind of lacking is um, a spot to ride a downhill bike and shuttle and real downhill tracks in this area. Like the trail riding amazing. And honestly, I'm a pro downhill rider, but I trail ride more than I downhill ride. So um, living close to that and everything that I need for training on a daily basis makes a little more sense than living near a downhill park that... I don't have access to the to the other things, so it was awesome when Bailey got started, and and then with Windrock, that was like the spot that we would go all the time to ride. Like even coming from Brevard, it's it's still the the spot that you know that you're gonna go, and no matter what day it is, you can ride, and the trails are gonna be rough and good practice for downhill <laughs> racing, and you you just know what you're gonna get when you're gonna go to Windrock. So that was that was a spot that was just kind of like. Local shuttle spot. It's on an off road park and it's all private land, so you can kind of do what you want out there. There's not as much regulation in Tennessee anyway, but the owners of the property were excited to have mountain bikers coming. And if you wanted to build a new trail, like you just asked and you could go for it. So it was a good spot for that. And um, I was just going out there and training a bunch, just using it as a place to to ride all off season the weather's also a little bit more mild out there than it is up in the mountains here in north carolina so on the on the colder days through the winter it's it's just doesn't freeze and maybe a little bit better for riding but i was riding out there a ton and the owners of the property were were like man it's cool you're coming out here so much how can we get more mountain bikers and i was like well there's not that many people that are gonna come here build their own trail and then shuttle themselves and pay you money to do all that. Like if you want more mountain bikers to come, you need to make it easier for them. There needs to be a reliable shuttle that operates on a regular basis and the trails need to be at least marked and maintained. And they asked me if I knew anybody who could do that. And I thought,
1: "Oh, oh hmm, I think I do."
2: <laughs> I was like, "Well, I could do it." And I mean, at this point that's 6 years ago that we had those conversations and I was 22 or 23 and I thought I could do everything. Yeah. I thought there was Yeah, I can just stay up all day and do more stuff in a day but I realize now that there's you only have so much energy to spend but yeah I I was excited about that I was like I love riding here if we can create an opportunity where other people can ride here too and that helps to pay for making it better and better then it's just going to make it like a better spot for me to ride and cool that other people can enjoy it so yeah we built that spot and it's uh Windrock's a unique thing. It's like no other bike park. It's very core. It's very authentic. It's, um, focused on the trails and it's, it's for real mountain bikers. Like there's not a lot of easy stuff out there and it has that reputation. So people that come there, they, they kind of know what they're getting into. You know what you're biting off when you go into that one. Yeah. And, and for me and the other guys in the region, Luca, Dakota, Chris Grice, like to have a spot that's Like the tracks at Windrock are just like what we ride at the World Cups. Um, The stuff from the Midway Drop is maybe a little shorter, but it's uh, the terrain is the same. It's it's great practice for us. So I think we're pretty lucky. There's not a lot of guys that race World Cups that have a spot like that near their house to practice. So um, we're definitely fortunate to have it and fortunate to have it year round. Like most good downhill tracks are at ski resorts, yeah, which you can only ride for a couple months in the summer. Mm -hmm. So to have a spot like that that we can ride all winter long. Is uh is pretty pretty lucky to have that.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people are thinking like they look up Windrock on Google and they're like, these guys are like hyping this spot up and it's in the middle of Tennessee. Like, what mountain is out there that's big enough to do a downhill run on? And
2: I thought the same. I mean, growing up in Pennsylvania, I didn't really think that Tennessee was a mountainous state and that they would have much terrain to ride. But if you go to Windrock, the the windmill drop is 2,200 feet. If I go down that trail, which there's no climbs on it, it's a little bit traversy, but if I hit it on my downhill bike as fast as I can go, it's over seven minutes of a straight-up downhill trail. So there's terrain out there, and then the paved road that goes halfway, the downhill tracks are about three minutes long, which is like... So what Snowshoe was? Yeah, exactly. Like I think it's 1,100 feet of drop. Snowshoe might be a couple hundred feet more, like 14. The trails at Windrock are relentless they're steep there's no flat sections they're great practice for what we need to do to go race in europe and i think like the general bike park in america is a little bit more groomed and easy and and honestly like that was something that was unique 10 years ago to have these groomed flow trails but now everywhere has it and yeah. to have a place that's kind of the opposite—that's focused on their single track and natural and raw trails—is unique, and there's not a lot of bike parks that are like that. So, I think it's pretty cool that we've got some place like that to ride.
1: Yeah. So you were spending all that time out at Windrock, but you kept living here in in Brevard area. Why don't you just move out there?
2: Well, I built a house here in Brevard, and I was going out there to to build a park, and I have a lot of friends that live in the area, and I could stay out at Windrock when I needed to. I don't know. I considered it a lot, but I just really enjoy Brevard. I think it's a good spot to be. I like living here. Good community. I'd probably trail ride and do the training in the gym more than I ride a downhill bike. Like The downhill bike days are pretty focused and planned, so to have the things that I need to do as an athlete on a regular basis here, it kind of makes more sense, and then when it comes close to the season, I'm riding downhill more. I can go over and ride at Windrock and rather just drive over there for the few days that I need it rather than live there all the time and drive over here to trail ride all the time. So, Good point. I like, I like that
1: idea. You got Windrock started and you're focused on your downhill career and everything. But then in the background, Canuga sneaks up on all of us, kind of. You had that going on there for a little bit, kind of on the down low.
2: Yeah, they. I mean, we had been in conversations with them. Um, one of my good friends, Dave Lamond, he's actually helped me out a ton. He's a doctor, and any kind of questions I have, like, I'm a downhill rider. I'm always getting injured, whether it's a big injury or a small injury. Mm-hmm. And um, I met Dave through riding here and living in the area, and he's helped me out with stuff like that pretty much since I've been living here. So he lives bordering the Canuga property. Canuga is a summer camp and conference center. I mean, they have hiking trails. They had stuff over on their property. It's a pretty nice forest. Mm-hmm. And he would kind of poach some of their trails that they were all they weren't used very often. So he would um, he knew the area. He knew the their trail network pretty well. And he would kind of like the line between his property and theirs was kind of gray. <laughs> he would okay go over there and and just explore their land and knew the guys pretty well. And they they wanted some bike trails, so they asked him about it, and he. And put me in touch with them. We had a meeting about it. And, and I told them, I was like, I, I'm not a trail builder. I've I've built this other bike park before. I, I kind of know what trail building costs and what other people are, what the going rate is for some of this stuff. And just gave them like an outline of it. And uh, they were like, okay, cool. Consider that. They run most of their business off of donations. Okay. They're a uh, religious-based summer camp. And they get a lot of money donated to run their program. So they had asked Dave to donate the trails. And um at first he was like, ah, "I don't know if I can really do that." Like it would be awesome to have this in my backyard, but I don't think I can donate the trails." And I was like, "Well, you should tell them that you'll donate them if you can open the park to the public as well." So then they get the trails that they wanted for their use and then we can uh we can have a public bike park there and recoup some of the funds to build it. And uh so we proposed that and they ended up being excited about it and we were able to work out a deal took a little while. Like I think it was like two years of just talking about it until it really happened. But, um, it kind of came about at the perfect time when, uh, a lot of our races got canceled at the beginning of last year due to COVID. And I had more time at home than I normally do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that was like right when we signed the deal to build the bike park at Canuga. So I had laid out almost all the trails there over the winter and we were going to have some guys coming and helping us build it. I I wasn't planning to do much of the construction, but I was kind of doing the layout and what I thought would work best for a pedal access bike park. And then as the races were canceled, I had nothing else to do. So I built a lot of the trails myself as well. Yeah. And, uh, I had a blast doing it. It's Mm -hmm. like super fun to see your vision come through and, um, lay a trail out and be able to go out there every day and work on it. So uh, I I had a blast doing that and it just, just kind of came about at the right time. Mm -hmm. And then when, um, Like, we were able to build it super quick. I think we started, like, April 1st and opened in uh, July, so it was, like, three months to build it. That's Uh, impressive. Yeah, well, uh, we didn't really have um, the normal hoops to jump through Mm -hmm. when you build a new trail. We kind of just got permission to do it, and we're able to just every day charge forward. And we didn't have to build them all necessarily the same standard as well like every trail is different and one of the cool things was being able to build more single track stuff more raw trails not having to make everything to the sustainability that you would in a place that received no maintenance because a big part of our plan was to have maintenance ongoing on a daily basis it's a bike park it's fairly compact we have three trail builders full-time working on the trails So we could make stuff that you wouldn't be able to make in a place that was harder to access to do maintenance and um, a place that you weren't planning to do daily maintenance. So we could build jumps and berm trails and some single track stuff that was steeper and be able to go through and just kind of tune it up as it was wearing in. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that was cool. Like it, it, it gave it a feel of like a more bike-specific trail, a, yeah. a trail that was designed for going fast and having fun on your mountain bike, mm-hmm. not uh, a trail that needs to last 10 years without being touched. Yeah, So it's it's kind of just a different thing. And and honestly, we were super lucky to have the terrain and the soil that we had out at Canoga. Like the forest was pretty open where we didn't have to really cut down any trees. We could plan all the trails efficiently around all that stuff. And the dirt is perfect it's like a sandy clay mix there's some big rocks out there that make cool features but there's not a bunch of small rocks in the dirt that you want to use to build the jump so all those things just made it like easy to do a good job making cool trails
1: and you guys are you know what almost like a year and a couple of months into opening now so how's the park been since it's you know you've, you've got a solid year plus in
2: so how are things going they're going really well, like much better than I would have expected. I I kinda thought it was an experiment, like a a bike park that you have to pay to use that doesn't have a lift. I didn't know if anybody would be really into that, but it turned out that tons of people are into it. I think it market it, it appeals to the type of bikes that people around here have. Mm-hmm. And the trails being maintained and in great shape is has been worth the mm-hmm. the fee to ride it. So people are stoked to pay a little bit of money for trails that are getting worked on every day of the week and they know are going to be maintained and are directional. They can go fast on and have features that you may not find at other places around here. Yeah. So I think it also was a big benefit that last summer when we opened was a time when a lot of other things were shut down. People were off of work. They had time to go do outdoor recreation and it being in a, In just outside in the woods, like we didn't really have any restrictions, so yeah, we it was new and exciting, and people had time, so they we had a lot of people coming out to use it. And since then, the word has spread, and consistently, people are coming out to ride. So I'm just blown away. It's awesome that it went so well, and uh, grateful for everybody who's come out to ride.
1: So far, we've noticed a theme here first, you're getting kids on bikes, which is awesome, and then second you've pretty much got like three bike trail zones under your belt. So obviously you like getting people on bikes and you like giving those people rad places to ride. And then also you guys started doing the Downhill Southeast Series. So a third thing you gave people an activity to get psyched on and do. So
2: you added that to your list of things. So
1: what was that like getting started?
2: yeah actually the the series was the first thing I started the first year of that was in 2016 and there had been a couple other small grassroots events for downhill in the area but they were they were kind of just very very grassroots and mm-hmm. I thought th- these were cool like I was going to me and Luca would go race like a stopwatch race at the trials training center in Chattanooga and the track was good, like it was worth us going and and racing each other and trying to do a preseason race here close by without having to fly to New Zealand to do it. Um, so I, I thought it would be cool if we made this a little bit more official, it had races that were just a little bit more organized and gave us a chance to do quality preseason races, but still not have to travel and utilize all the cool terrain and this region has like i said like mild climate so we could do that stuff early we were usually starting our world cup season in april or may and we could do a couple of races back then the idea was to do them all before that and use them as like a preseason warm up before we went off and raced so really i wanted to do it just to have cool races to do there wasn't really a lot going on in the southeast for downhill um race wise and i i thought why not? Like we have such good terrain. We've got places to do it. Like it just took someone to kind of put all the pieces together and make it happen. So I remember the first, the first race we did, I was so stoked to see the pre-registration go over a hundred riders. I was like, wow, a hundred people want to do my race. Like, this is so cool. That's awesome. And then, um, and then this year is the sixth year for it. And all the races had more than 350 riders and Whoa. snowshoe had over 400 We had a ton of little kids that were really into it. Like, we have um, a bunch of kids' categories. I think beginner 13 to 15, there was, like, 55 kids in every race. So awesome to see that. And, And for downhill, like, I love downhill, which is why we started doing the series. We probably could have done a series for enduro or a more popular discipline. But to do it for downhill and see it grow so much and see all these new faces coming out to race and enjoying it, like, so like I said, it's like the stuff I like to do. I want to give people the chance to experience why I like it and why I like to do those things and why it's fun. So, yeah, it's awesome to see people enjoying it the same way I do.
1: Yeah, and you you guys have also have started including in some venues the cross-country portion of XC Southeast.
2: Yeah, yeah. This this spring we put on a couple cross-country races. We had one at Canuga and one at Baker Creek in Knoxville. And um, just trying to, like, experiment with other stuff, see what the interest level is. Mm -hmm. Um, We've done a few enduro races in the past as well. It's it's easier for me to do downhill because I know it so well. And I know exactly what you would want from a good downhill race. With the other disciplines, I try to lean on some people for advice that know better. But, yeah, just trying to figure it out and see, like, what other cool things we can do to just create some buzz about mountain biking, like, if if it just made a couple people come out and have a great time and feel like they wanted to get more involved with riding then i think it did did what i was looking for absolutely it definitely did that
1: so we've talked about what you've kind of been doing some might say behind the scenes but you know you're a world cup racer that's what you're mostly known for so let's back that up again when was your first world cup season
2: so you have to be 17 to race the world cup Mm -hmm. and um i was lucky enough to sign to a factory team my first year um i had some good results when i was 16 i went to crankworks and did pretty well try to just get my name out there to try to get support it's much easier to go to a a european world cup with good team support than it is to go by yourself so yeah i was trying to get my name out and get on a team and i rode for the trek world racing team for the first five years and um so yeah first one was when i was 17 and and as a junior, and I um, had, yeah, good support going and racing, so I was pretty fortunate for that. And, and what was that like? Was it what you thought it would
1: be, like going into like, the, the, the big leagues like that?
2: I think so. I think I had like a good idea of what I was looking for. We had a couple of World Cups that were kind of close to where I was living. Like we had Mount St. Anne and Bromont in Quebec, which is a 10-hour drive from Pennsylvania, and when I was 16, I went up there, and they have a they still have the need for forerunners, which are like number plate a b c people that kind of go to clear the course before the race and i'd like written to the organizers of those venues and asked like hey i'm 16 i'm not old enough can i be one of these course clears for you guys at your races and had like tried to email him a ton to get this done and luckily was able to do it so i was able to ride um before i was old enough to race at those two world cups And you're supposed to just, like, ride slowly down the course, make sure it's clear. And I had a stopwatch on my handlebars, and I was trying to do as fast of a time as I could to see what place I would get in the race. And back then, they didn't have junior categories. If you were a junior, you were just um, in the elite field and had, like, a little asterisk next to your name. So I was trying to, like, make sure I'd qualify in the the elite field and see where I would end up. So I kind of had a little bit of an... A feel for what it would be like racing but um definitely being in it myself the first couple of times was a little bit of a learning curve What how did you stack up when you did your self-timing on those races i qualified but i was like mid-pack and okay. i think i was faster at bromont because bromont was a pretty short course i think it was only like two and a half minutes but saint anne is like notoriously one of the longest courses it's like five minutes long so I got pretty worn out <laughs> on the St. Ann course. I didn't have the, the fitness to, to do the full pull on that one. But I think Bromont, I was like in the in the mid-pack. Like I was at 40th place or something. And, and then it was 80 would qualify. And um, all the juniors were in the elite field. So I was pretty stoked to like do a time that would have been 40th place when I was 16. Yeah. Did you get reprimanded for pinning it down the course instead of clearing it? No, I never um, like – caused a problem i think if i would have like crashed and hurt myself and been the one causing a issue rather than clearing it then i probably probably would have got in trouble but it was all good so you just
1: started your off season and we just watched the insane season finale of snowshoe happened a couple of weeks ago but during the season what's like a week's schedule look like for you with your your training and managing also these other projects you got going on
2: Mid season, it's tough to make a bunch of gains training. So I would say it's more maintaining the fitness base that I built in the off season. So you can't really go too deep because if you look at being ready to race the next weekend, you can't really put yourself into too deep of a hole during the week and then be recovered. So um, the trainings I would say is kind of light and short and quick and uh, and fast. So it's, whether it's getting on the downhill bike for a couple of fast runs, doing some heavy, quick weight sessions, or doing some shorter sprints on the bike. Downhill races are generally three to five minutes long, and more of them are on the three-minute side. So short sprints are kind of important. So that sort of stuff, it doesn't take a lot of time, but you just have to be able to get it in and get recovered. And the recovery aspect is really important for a sport like this. So not doing too much stuff. But luckily I have time to, you know, hop on the computer and and be able to be in touch with people. My girlfriend Callie is the manager of the bike park at Canuga. So she pretty much handles everything to do with that, which is really nice. That was like a big plus to opening this bike park was like with Dave involved and having the necessary funding. We were able to have the resources we needed rather than at Windrock. When um, Sean and I started that bike park, we just like built it out of hard work and elbow grease. So we kind of had to do everything with that one, so having um, Cali plus the trail builders and and m- rental bike mechanics, and everybody at Canoga makes it a little bit easier. It's really um, I'm super lucky to have that and don't have a lot of stress to do with running that bike park. And then yeah, like the downhill series, my brother helps me a ton with that. Um, my mom does the registration. It's kind of a family deal at the Downhill Southeast, which I think a lot of people like to see that they totally feel, yeah. feel like they're part of the community. So. I've got a good support team to be able to help me to do all this stuff. And um, a lot of times it's just like creating the vision and coming up with it. And I feel bad sometimes, like whether it's my brother or Callie at the bike park, I come up with all these great ideas and I'm like, sweet, uh, go make sure this gets done. (laughs) But I've got them that I can count on and they do a great job of like working on it with me. And yeah, super fortunate to have that. How much uh, trail bike riding are you doing during the season? Um... Would love to be able to go and ride for three or four hours in Pisgah, but the fact of the matter is, to do a three minute downhill sprint, it's like it's kind of counterproductive to be endurance riding, I guess you would say. So they're shorter than I'd like. Sometimes it's just a quick maxwell to black or quick loop or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, a couple times a week. I mean, trail bike riding is a great way to get good fitness base and be on the trail, keeping your skills sharp as well. So. It's also super fun. Like, I would love to... If I wasn't racing, I'd go right in Pisco like, all day, every day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it seems like, you know, we've got a couple of heavy hitters in the
1: area, you know, yourself included. What does does Western North Carolina provide to you guys that
2: is so attractive? Uh, The trails are rough, raw. It's proper mountain biking. The climate's similar to what we have in Europe. I think a lot of trails in Europe are similar, where they're, like, kind of old hiking trails. They are not too easy to ride um you have to really ride the bike rather than just stand on it with your eyes closed and takes you down the trail yeah so it develops the skill set of being able to like handle whatever mother nature throws at you whether it's like the different elements or the lay of the rocks and the roots as they are Mm -hmm. and yeah we've got long descents and they're rough and uh it's easy to break your bike out there too so i think you have to (laughs) learn to like get the bike through the trails and like, I don't want to be two hours from my car and break a rim or get a flat tire or wh- whatever it is. So I think like in downhill racing, it's easy to like smash your bike into stuff and not make it to the bottom. But there's somewhat of a art of like knowing how to be light on your feet and smooth through sections and riding out here in this type of terrain. Like it kind of teaches you that you have to, like Luca is one of the smoothest riders of the world cup and he grew up riding here in Pisgah mm-hmm. and I think it kind of teaches that sort of style. Is like you have to ride smooth. You can't just be a hack out there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're in your off-season now. You just finished up a, an interesting season, you know, after 2020 and then the changes in 2021. How have your past two seasons been? Has some of the, the shutdowns and stuff like that, you know, had an effect
2: on you? Um, no, I'm pretty lucky. Like where we live and the sport that I do, it hasn't really affected me a lot. I think a lot of other people it's affected way more. Um, I was lucky that we were able to get two seasons in. It's definitely affected the dates and the travel a little bit, but I can't complain at all about that. Um, One thing that has affected me was uh, last spring, April, I crashed riding on upper black and broke my C6 and C7 in my neck. I hate to be, like, one to take the position of the victim or (laughs) complain about stuff. I'm more the guy that's going to, like, keep that a secret and keep on... Trucking, yeah. I didn't know the severity of an injury like that. I went to a few local doctors and tried to like see how it would heal on its own without going right for surgery. But after I'd say two months, it was like was still having some issues nerve wise. Um, there's a nerve that comes out of that vertebrae that goes to your left arm, and I was having like a ton of numbness in my fingers, my breaking fingers, and like my bicep and tricep just weren't like working as they were supposed to. Like I do push-ups and as soon as i started to get tired i would like really favor one side so i ended up having the the two vertebrae fused which i guess having two fused is is better than having multiple fused i definitely lost a little bit of range of motion in my neck but for what i do like i don't need to be turning my head super far to the side like downhill racing you're kind of keeping a static position and looking ahead which i don't think that bothers me too much definitely better than I mean in the situation it was the best option and it was able to uh, the doctor was able to like clean up the area and take a little bit of pressure off that nerve which I've definitely seen a ton of improvement but it's still not hundred percent like I have some numbness in my braking finger still and it's like it's not totally numb it's like if you've slept on it and wake up and it's kind of like a little bit of lack of touch yeah but that can be difficult like when you're doing precise braking I like guess my front brake which is a lot of power and you just have to be precise with that it's hard to gauge that. It is, and it's tough to, like, come into a section and break super late and, like, the guys I'm racing against are so fast and taking so many risks that having just even a little bit of lack of sensitivity there is, has given me some trouble. So that's been something that I've been trying to overcome. It gets better. Like, even now, it's a year and a half later. Like, it's still seeing improvement, but a nerve is its weird. It's like I have a broken bone or anything like that. I've always known that it was going to heal. Like, time goes by, it's going to be better. But um, something like this is, is like much less linear of a healing process. It's kind of uh, just a little bit more of a gray area there. So that, that gave me more trouble than anything over the past two seasons.
1: Okay. Travel. Travel isn't the same as it used to be. Travel's a hu- much huger hassle now. So how has traveling this year been for this? for the races?
2: Yeah, honestly, it wasn't as bad as I expected. Okay. I'm not as bad as people say it is. Um, I was able to go everywhere I wanted to. You definitely, you have to get tested a lot at the events, like everyone does. Some of the events was more strict than others with like 48-hour testing, so you had to get tested multiple times. But almost all of them, you had to get tested to get on a flight or to uh, get into a country mm-hmm. or to uh, get your accreditation and uh, credentials at each event. So just a little bit more testing involved. But honestly, of anything that people are doing around this pandemic, I think the testing is probably the best. Like if you've yeah. got a test within 48 hours, that shows that you're uh, you're not going to spread any, any disease. So Yeah.
1: I mean, for me right now, the show that I'm on, I do a spit test Monday mornings that I drop in FedEx. And then when I get on set Friday, I do another COVID test. Yeah. So it's like a double test for for work a lot so i'm i know i know the 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 hassle that it can be
2: yeah i mean it's not even the test it's a lot of times it's like at the events they set up testing for everyone at the event and you wait in line for an hour it's just like another thing to do but it is what it is like if we want to go race and we want to be able to do the things that we like like if if that's what the local government says we got to do then like it, it, that's it's, what you do <laughs> yeah it's not your opinion it's just like this is it like you want to race do it if you don't then don't come to the race yeah
1: exactly travel wise i know you spent a good amount of time kind of hanging out in
2: europe in between races how, how was that it was great honestly like it added up to be a lot of time away from home but i mean if i i can't complain that i was in the alps mountain biking between work you yeah. know like uh, if i wasn't getting paid to go to the races and it was my job i would probably be saving up to go to a holiday someplace cool to mountain bike so being able to stay over there like we had an, a week in innsbruck earlier in the summer we had a, another week in morzine in france and riding the port de Soleil. and then um, this fall we had a, a week in morzine as well so having like those off weeks in pretty cool places that you can go ride is is awesome i mean like i said i would I'd plan a trip to Morzine if I if I if I was just a recreational mountain biker. So, to have to stay over there and do it is like it's pretty, oh, pretty oh good darn yeah, it's a pretty good opportunity.
1: Yeah, so you're able to, to ride a good bit in between races and have some fun.
2: Yeah, I'd say so. Like I like I was saying, like um, you're not gonna train super hard and go really deep with any sort of weightlifting or hard uh, cardio training. So. Sometimes just staying sharp on the bike and having a little bit of fun. Mm -hmm. Like a downhill race is very skill-based and very mental. So feeling good on the bike and having the chance to ride some cool trails and have fun, like that could be the best thing to do. So it's cool to go to those places and be able to do that.
1: Doesn't sound like the worst thing. So how rad was it coming back to the States and having like the ender
2: for the season be like a doubleheader at Snowshoe? Oh, it was amazing. Like there's so many U.S. fans. I think it's like the number one country for Red Bull TV. For, for people that watch the races and we haven't had a whole lot of races over the past few years in the U.S. so to have that and, and like our season being kind of cut short the past couple years due to the pandemic I think this year we had Fort William that was canceled and to make up for it they scheduled this double header so to have that at Snowshoe in the U.S. in the southeast was super cool and I have to give a lot of props to the Snowshoe Mountain crew because Putting on a World Cup is not an easy thing to do. And it's uh, it requires a big commitment, and it might not make perfect sense of all the things you could do at your resort financially. You have to have a passion for mountain biking. Like the, You could probably have a summer concert and maybe argue that it makes more money than a World Cup. But for them to have such a passion for mountain biking, to put on a World Cup and a doubleheader and make it happen here in the U.S., is very commendable. So it's really awesome that Snowshoe did that. And it was so cool to have so many screaming US fans and and be a US rider. I I think American fans are worth like four times a European fan just because they (laughs) yell so loud. It was awesome to have. That's awesome. So for some of you East Coast riders, did
1: it kind of feel like a home course?
2: A little bit. Like we've had um, national series races and national championship races at Snowshoe almost every year um, for the past 10 years. So We've raced that lower hairball rock section a ton of times. It definitely cut in differently and was faster for the World Cup. I think we had a little bit of an advantage coming from the Southeast racing at Snowshoe. Mm -hmm. I think it was cool because a lot of people, locals that I know, have raced that track before, whether it was at a downhill Southeast race or one of the nationals. So they could watch it and watch it on TV and see what the guys were doing and understand how they felt when they rode that. And when you see it, on a track you've never seen before in europe like the camera doesn't do it justice how steep or how much detail there is and how many rocks and edges there are and how complex the course is but for people who have ridden it i think it was really cool to see the best pros in the world riding it and it can make it a little bit more relatable and and make it a little bit more understandable how fast those guys were going yeah so that was pretty cool which course did you like better uh, the second course I thought was better. It used the full lower hairball section. And the first course used what's considered the wild zone, which is that steep section underneath the chairlift. Mm-hmm. And that to me is not really the direction that I like to see the races going. It's like it's definitely a hard section for racing because it's the braking is really crucial and it's steep. But it's, f- it's 20 feet wide, it's smooth, and you just pretty much skid down a straightaway. Okay. So it's it's like a different, sk- it's definitely, it takes a skill to go faster than other riders and separate yourself in a section like that. But I preferred the second course, which used more single track rock gardens. Mm-hmm. It was more technical. It was chunky and kind of awkward. You had to work the bike to get through it. and. I guess it suits me better as well, which is why I like it. But uh, th- that's what I would like to see more of in the sport. This uh, really f- high-speed, wide, uh, almost looks like a washed-out four-wheel drive road type of trails. Is yeah. like That's, to me, far from a mountain bike trail. Agreed. So, like I said, it takes a skill to ride that and to separate yourself on that type of terrain. Um, it's difficult, but I- I'd like to see more like technical, rough mountain bike trails.
1: Right on. How, how do you think the, the the foreigners enjoyed the course?
2: They all liked it, and they loved um, the venue, and and being in the U.S., I think, is a special thing. It's funny to me to hear how many of them complain about jet lag when we have to go every weekend to race in Europe. Yeah, and for real. Mo- on a normal season, be five trips to Europe, and I've gotten pretty used to it by now, but they were all there. Like I think they got there 10 days in advance, and they were all complaining about the jet lag still. I was like... We, we deal with this coming from the U.S. every weekend. Yeah. So it was kind of funny. But they, they love the course. Um, it's generally flatter. Like anybody who's ridden snowshoe, it's, it's a pretty long mm-hmm. run for how much drop there is. So there's naturally going to be some flat sections. European World Cups are just steep and relentless. So it was um, a flatter average gradient. But I think over the course of a, a long race series, having some variety... Is, is a good thing. Oh, like absolutely, if they're all, yeah, yeah. If they're all steep and dragging brakes and rooty, then that's gonna suit one type of rider. But snowshoe being rocky and flatter and requiring a different skill set, I think was pretty cool. All
1: right, uh, for next year's schedule, currently there's a snowshoe race in July and then a Mount St. Anne. So that sounds like a fun stack of races. Are you pretty excited for
2: that? Absolutely, St. Anne's one of the best tracks on the circuit. And Canada has been tough with all this stuff the past two years, so we haven't got to race there since 2019. So I'm stoked to go back to that race. And uh, yeah, having snowshoe, I've heard they signed a three-year deal, so they'll be on the schedule for the next couple years. Yeah, that's awesome to see. The more races in North America, I'd say, the better. Yeah, especially helps you with jet lag. (laughs) If I lived in um, France or Switzerland or Austria, I could drive to every race closer than I could drive to a downhill Southeast race. So for those guys, it's like, it's somewhat easy to race the world cup if they were all six hours from my house. But, um, yeah, it's cool that there's more in the U.S. i S I'd like to see. I mean, it's a world cup, so it's cool to see more of a balance.
1: Yeah. Covered a lot of stuff here. What else do you have up your sleeve? You know, you're always doing some cool stuff. So what's, what's next for Nico?
2: Um, well, it's the off season. So I, we're one week into it. I took a pretty good, chill week after snowshoe that was with a doubleheader six days of riding Mm -hmm. that rough track going through lower hairball at mock speed six days in a row added up
1: you're still shaking your hands out a little (laughs) bit
2: (laughs) so i was i was glad to take a pretty chill week last week but um yeah i'm trying to put together a program for myself for next year to go racing so i've been um working on that and uh yeah just going to try to make improvements there's nothing quite like going and racing the very best guys in the world there's not many jobs that you kind of have to look in the mirror and and do your very best every day and think man how can i be even better like what can i possibly do to better myself and sometimes it's uh like i finished 33rd at snowshoe it can be kind of Not that inspiring to be like, man, I put in all this effort in like 33rd place. I think I was like seven seconds back in 33rd. It's like so tight. Yeah. But you have to like really look at yourself and see what you can do to be better. And I think like I've ridden better than I ever have. Everyone else is too. And the times are tight as ever. And there's so many guys on every second. But to have to really look into yourself and find more is, um, it's something that can be frustrating, but, but rises everyone. Yeah. And, um, having drives you for sure. Yeah. Having a sport like that is pretty cool. So like this off season, there's a lot that I can do to improve. It's going to be fun to try to put all those pieces in place with, um, my training, my equipment and, um, try to put everything I need to do even better next year. Yeah. Big focus on that. Probably build some new trails at Canuga. I like the sound of that. Yeah. Windrock too. And then, um, the race series with Downhill Southeast, we're looking at having, um, like, we've always had four or five. We're going to try to have six next year. Keep them growing. Try to make it really fun for those beginners that are coming out and racing. So when they when they want to decide what they're going to do on the weekend, Downhill's at the top of the list. Make sure it was a fun experience for them. But, yeah, just kind of refine. I guess I'm not going to do anything new and different in the next year or two, but just uh, refine the process of what I've been doing. Awesome.
1: Well, sweet. So to kind of wrap things up, where is the best place people can kind of keep up with what you're doing, like, social media-wise?
2: Yeah, I've got an Instagram account, Nico Malali. You can follow me there. My brother and I recently started making some YouTube videos more over the lockdown last year. We um, weren't racing, so we made a bunch of videos last summer and have been keeping it going this year. A big big part of what I'm going to try to work on for next year is going to be um, doing more media at the races and kind of giving people a behind-the-scenes look of what it's like to be a World Cup rider and um, some of the technical aspects that go into racing and bike setup and I enjoy that sort of stuff so we're gonna try to give people a look at that through the YouTube stuff so I'm Nico Malali on YouTube as well you can give that a follow or just check the videos I'll be posting links to them so those are probably the two best ways to keep track
1: those sound like two great ways to keep track dude awesome thanks so much for your time and uh see you in the woods soon
2: yeah sounds good thank you
0: Dude, he says regarding Canuga, I'm not a trail builder, but he'd build a bike park and trails at Wind Rock. Is he just being humble there?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, that's just how he is, it seems like.
0: Trail builder, whether he likes it or not. Race promoter, bike park partner, getting kids on bikes, and he still has time and energy to show up on race day at these World Cup races. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's all those things stacked up right there, what you just said, are pretty much why we waited a little bit to get him on the show because we knew it was gonna be pretty
0: special. Yeah, you gotta have a time and a place, right? Exactly. Well, how's the weather looking for the next week? Well,
1: uh, as of now, the weather up through the weekend looks amazing. You know, high close to 80 every day with lows down in the mid-50s, but then around Monday into the middle of the week we've got some showers creeping in with some Lower temperatures, but you no know,
0: it's showing scattered, so you know, you never know. I'll believe it when I see it. And with these colder temps comes unfortunately earlier nightfall. Yep, it
1: is bike light season. So make sure you have a little something stashed in your bib pocket for those uh, those unforeseen night rods.
0: If you're looking for some light options, check back to our episode one oh three that features outbound lighting.
1: Speaking of outbound, I actually did a couple of canuga laps with Tom today. So that was super awesome to see him while passing through town. Nice. Well, guys, that is a wrap on this week's episode. And as always, you can find us on social media. Just search Pisgah Podcast. And, you know, we've got a decent little merch store going up. All you got to do is visit pisgahpodcast.bigcartel.com. And we're giving five bucks for every t-shirt sold back to Pisgah Sorba.
0: Right on. And if you've ever entered a raffle to win a one off pro DH rig but didn't win, then head over to NicoMalali.com and try again. Then go ahead and click subscribe and share with your friends and buy your friends a listen to Pisgah t shirt or koozie. I just got one so far. I'm going to wait.
1: Truck just to drive Nico's bike around
0: Oh man, that's gonna cost another raffle ticket, so maybe not.